Hey, welcome to the latest episode of the Quazcast here on thescore.com. Uh, my name is Jeff Perlman, your, your host every week. And, uh, you know, the goal is always to, uh, I always say, to bring people the quirky and the funky and the cool and the, the funkadelic. And, and that's true, but, but I also, I'm just a fan of interesting people. And my guest today is, uh, in my eyes, beyond interesting. And he's interesting because, you know, he, had, he retired from the major leagues with 1,100 uh, hits. He's interesting because he, uh, he hit 325 in 1999. He's interesting because he, he works for ESPN. He's interesting because he's an established writer. But most of all, beyond anything else, Doug Glanville is interesting because he's the only guy I know who has ever matched me in Hall & Oates fandom. <laughs> I mean, there's nobody. I'm being, Doug, I'm not, uh, I'm not exaggerating, and I think you've probably experienced some of this too when I say throughout my life growing up in Mayo Pack, New York, and University of Delaware, and, you know, writing, I've always, you know, spoken with passion about the virtues of Hall and & Oates, and I'm always ridiculed. And I feel like for you and I, I know you're not Jewish, but I feel like this year we had a bar mitzvah together when Hall & Oates <laughs> got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> oh, without a doubt, I've been waiting. I've been waiting. But uh, the passion is there, and this, was, this all began when I was probably about 12, so... I, I tend to be very loyal, so I'm sticking with my band from my childhood, and they're still making great music. You know what, Doug? I don't even. I, this is you know I lean sports here, but I don't even care. How did you? Um, I mean, I you know I bought my brother H2O in 1982. He didn't really like it. I listened to it a million times. I've been hooked ever since. How did you find the miracle that is Daryl Hall and John Oates? Well, the first moment was Kiss on my list. It. Uh, you know, we're talking 81, somewhere in that ballpark. And I remember hearing it. I was like, wow, you know, you know, kind of catchy. And I, but I didn't know what they looked like. And I remember just like, oh, and, you know, and I think I saw some video, I think the concert video that they had. And I was actually pretty stunned because I expected to see African-American artists. Right. <laughs> and it was like, wow, who are these guys? And, uh, you know, I, but it was intriguing to me because you know, I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, which was kind of at the forefront of integration in the 50s, and they voluntarily integrated the school system. So by the time I came along in the 70s and 80s, it was sort of this transition to, you know, kind of a rallying cry for diversity. And, you know, we kind of stuck together as, a, as like a family of people in Teaneck. And it was fitting that Hall & Oates fit into this mold of, wow, this, this is a band that kind of has soul roots that look different, and you have the tall, blonde guy and the shorter, dark-haired guy, and, and they're making you know, versatile music that you know, resonated. I thought that was kind of fitting to what I was experiencing in Phoenix. So I think they click with me on a lot of levels beyond the music, and I'm still listening, so it <laughs> must have been something deep. You know? <laughs> so let me, who is, um, if you had to decide here, more Hall of Fame worthy, Hall and Oates getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, or Craig Biggio, who fell, was it one vote or two votes or a couple percentages shy of the Baseball Hall of Fame this year? Well, I, I got to go Hall and Oates. I'm biased, but, but you know, you also think about 45-plus years of music together. 
I mean, that's phenomenal. And um, that, and you know, obviously they had some hit-making machine years, but it kind of, it, it tends to overshadow some of the great work they did in the 70s and the fact that they still put on great shows, you know, today in 2014. So that's longevity. And what I, I was just impressed with their versatility of musical styles. They can really play anything. And, um, you know, I played against Bizio a long time and phenomenal player certainly drove you up the wall as a leadoff hitter and take the hit by pitch and steal. He can do everything, catch, played second, played center, you know, so great respect for him. I would think at some point he will get in though. But he was no Oates. He was no Oates. No Oates. No, no no Oates. You know, poor Oates didn't get the love because he sort of was seen as a supporting cast, but he, he had a huge role in just creating the sound, that harmony. And, uh, you know, a long time ago he was, he was just as integral as Daryl Hall in terms of, you know, singing in the vocals. And and uh, that continued in a more background vocal role. But his, his harmonies, beautiful stuff. So that's, it fits well. They fit like a glove. Yeah, you know, I think if we uh, if we keep this going, we could we could definitely score some free uh, Hall & Oates t-shirts and, <laughs> and graph. But I won't, uh, <laughs> that's not really my style. That's not the way I work. So you, um, you know, Doug, you, uh, you work at ESPN, obviously, uh, Baseball Tonight, you know, analyst, et cetera, et cetera. And, I'm always fascinated, and I've asked this question to other guests because I always get a different answer, and, and I always find it fascinating. You, you spent nine years in the major leagues. Um, you had a very, very good, very productive major league career. And I'm always amazed, or uh, amazed is a wrong word. I'm always fascinated by guys who, when they're done playing, um, find fulfillment in talking about the game they can no longer play at a high level. Like, I would think... There'd be a part, for example, if I, can, if I can no longer write, if I just sort of, my writing ability kind of faded away with age, as it, as it does with ball players. I think the last thing I'd want to do is talk to people about writing because I think it would hurt me to a certain degree that I no longer had the ability to do it. How do you find satisfaction in talking about the game and analyzing the game that you once played? Well, you know, for starters, baseball was a complete love. You know, it was a, and, and you know, and when I say that, I mean, it was more than just playing. It was learning the game. It was playing Stratomatic baseball with my cards. It was playing computer simulations of baseball. You know, and I think the thing that's different with sport is that you come into it as a fan. You know, before I played professionally or at any level, I was a fan of the game and I learned to love all the nuances behind the scenes that involve supporting the game and being a fan and just thinking through you know, what makes up the rules of the game and, and sort of the passion connection points. And then I, you know, had a career at it. So I'm just kind of going back to what started this whole wild ride of baseball in the first place. And, you know, being able to talk at it now through experience, that excites me because it now I have real empirical evidence about the things that I was, you know, loving as a kid. And I can share that with other kids and fam- fans and, and, you know, be in the cycle of baseball that is almost timeless. You can go back in time and move forward in time, and and you can still have the same type of conversations that um, that transcend generations of fans. So, I, you know, it's been pretty easy. And, and I think the other thing is I was ready. I was ready to change. You know, sometimes you get, you know, you go out of the game and you're kicking and screaming, and you know, it's a bad breakup and a bad ending, which is a lot of the cases. But for me. It, yeah, I got released by the Yankees in 2005, but I was also ready to to go home. And, and I think I had 
a piece for, uh, at that which made it easier to kind of talk about that relationship now as an analyst. Right. How, now, when you, um, when you got released, did you know, like, are there, I'm always fascinated by the end. I find the end, I had a long talk with Ellis Valentine uh, a couple weeks ago on this show about the end. Um, did you know your end? Like, does an athlete know his end before he admits he knows his end? Are you aware of it and you just have to accept it and accept the idea of expressing that to people? Well, you know, I think my ending from a physical standpoint was premature. I mean, I, I could have played longer. Uh, I, I had an offer to go to AAA with the Padres after I got released. And certainly I could have continued on. And there's no doubt that it was still a moment that I was not sure. Like, okay, well, the Yankees released me. I'm back in my apartment. Do I try to latch on? Do I try to, you know, so I had a week to kind of think it over. And then kind of a moment of clarity hit me. I'd met my wife, and I was talking to a friend who was in Hollywood who'd left Hollywood and said it was like going through barbed wire to get out. But once he got on the other side, the burden was lifted. And I remember thinking about that. And, you know, and then I was like, you know what? It, it's time. You know, it was time. And, and so, you know, it wasn't an on-field thing for me. And, and I know Gary Maddox, who I love as, as a mentor of mine, played with the Phillies a long time. He said that, you know, he was in center field. His moment was he was in center field, the ball was hit, and he, he took a jump, and he said his body didn't move. His mind moved, but his body stayed there. And he's, he's like, literally, that was it. He said he was done. Um, I didn't, my body didn't quite get there, but I, I felt like a lot had changed in my life. And the three years before I retired, my father passed away. Just a lot of things started to change how I perceived being on the road and not having my own family and just nomadic life and my mom getting older it just it started to weigh very differently for me now, what do you think most players when they um obviously a, most ball players uh in all sports across the spectrum kind of go kicking and screaming i mean you you see a ton of athletes who have these great careers and at the end you look at the last whatever two years of their career and maybe they play with five teams maybe there's a minor league stint do you think after the kicking and screaming is done after it's over there's a final cut and it's just done. Do you think for most athletes, um, it's more of a sense of panic or perhaps a sense of relief? Well, I, I think it's panic. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's panic. I mean, I think most, you know, it's sort of the rainbow. You've been sold this sort of uh, idea like, oh, wow, you know, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But I, I, I think it's a brick wall, actually. I think you really have a lot of trouble resolving that it's over. And so even when it is over, you're in denial. You're kind of thinking, well, you maybe if he caught on or maybe if the slider was a little better that spring. You know, I, I don't know when that actually goes away. I think that lingers for quite a while for, for players. I mean, I mean look, I, I, it's not that I don't think about, oh, I could have played another year, but I don't. it's not a regrettable feeling. It's not. It's more about, like, acknowledging that, there was some physical ability left in the tank, so to speak. But I wanted to at least have some level of being on, you know, the, the terms, my terms. Yes, the Yankees released me, but I could have gone back, and I just elected not to. I think players, when you've been doing this your whole life, and this is it, and, and people tell you this is, you know, you're doing the greatest thing under the wor in the world, and you are on some degree doing that. Yeah, why, you know, it's hard to see what's possible on the other side, and. So you hold on as long as you can, and 
and uh, you don't realize how much time goes by while you're doing this. It's really, it's really amazing how quickly it moves, and then you look up and you know you're on the other side. Do you think that's because of the repetitive nature of the job? Repetitive and relentless. Yes, it's it's as Jimmy Pearsall, my longtime coach, used to say, this game will bring you to your knees because it's coming at you every day and. And, you, you know, I could tell you, I could look on a calendar or a pocket schedule and tell you where I was in 1997 on, like, July 5th because it's in the schedule. Right. Like, that's how laid out your life is. And then all of a sudden you don't have that structure, that dependable bus time and the sort of, you know, pyramid scheme of getting to the top. You just have to deal with real life on, you know, in real terms. And it's it's a shock, you know, and I think there's no doubt that, that presents a lot of challenges for players transitioning from the game. I mean, you know, most of the relationships struggle. You know, if you're married and all of a sudden you're home, it's like, you know, a retired couple at 67 retiring and going, wait a minute, I, you know, I just realized I was not around for all this time. And now you're trying to be a, a, a day-to-day father. Now you're trying to share responsibilities and you, you realize did you, you know, how much your spouse had changed or you know, you players go through a lot of this stuff, and that's, hence the divorce rate is astronomical, uh, which a lot of it happens in the transition. So, you know, it's you would think you know you've done something great with your life that you love to do, but you know you got to come home to a, a, a different reality, and a lot of that reality's change is is, is yourself. <laughs> right? Does it? Does it? Does the major league career, like, does the actual act of being a major league baseball player, um? Does it live up to what one would think? You know, all these, all these parents who are pushing their kids, pushing their kids, pushing their kids, you need to play three seasons, um, you know, who, who dream of their kids becoming major leaguers before their kids become major leaguers. Um, is it worth it? Yeah. Oh, it's worth it. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved it. I had a great time. I mean, personally, my experience, uh, you know, I, I was a fan even while I was playing. I mean, and there was a purity to that going and I was – I just remember the first tour of Major League Stadiums, just playing against teams and looking up and seeing Candlestick Park and Wrigley and you know, I mean, I loved that. It was it was I was a huge fan. And the other thing that's really understated is you grow up a fan of the game, you know all these players that you watch growing up, and then you start playing minor league ball, and they're your coaches. They become your coaches and your staff and your hitting coach and your mentors. I mean, I was, every day I was surrounded by players I, I knew a lot about, and, you know, Mike Schmidt and Gary Maddox and all. You know, it, that was a thrill, I mean, to just be in that mix and them supporting you. And, and I thought that that gets kind of understated about what players really enjoy about it. But, you know, I had a blast. I, I did. And, and But it's a roller coaster. And it's, and it's also, you know, as one of my coaches said, you have to give up the best years of your life to do this. And it sounds strange when you're like, well, what else would you want to do? But it's all in. I mean, there's there's no days off. I mean, once that bell rings, it's go. And, you know, I'll quote John Oates. John Oates, who said, well, you don't have time for everyday life. And the people have to get on your program, you know, your wife, your girlfriend, whatever. It's It's kind of all about you. It's a very self-absorbed existence. And you can have a lot of fun with that, but at the same time, it's you know you're going to miss weddings and funerals, you're going to miss birthdays and births, and you know it's and you got to keep going. You know, my dad got sick in in 2000, got a call the last day of spring training. Your father had a major stroke. 
and I was halfway across the country in Seattle. And I still had to play opening day, and then when we flew back, I visited him. He couldn't say my name. He was incoherent. And, you know, I have to play. I ended up playing three seasons like that with my dad in and out of ERs. And, you know, that's, that's hardcore, you know. Um, now, do you have – when you're doing that, is there um... – is there a lot of guilt, or do you just know it is what it is? No, I, I've felt guilt. I've felt a lot of things. I felt like you know, the burden on my mom and just her handling it kind of on her own. My my brother was trying to get back from time to time, but you know the I the, the reprieve that I you know eventually found was he he was thrilled at what I was doing with my life, and he eventually you know got some speech back, was able to communicate you know well enough, and he said you know you, you, I didn't want you to just watch me, you know, age and die, you know, like, so that, you know, that's not what you, I want you to do what you need to do. And what you do brings me joy. You know, you can watch the games, you know, I was thankful for that. Turn on whatever show, watch the Braves, TBS, local networks, the Mets, Yankees, you know, he was able to follow me in in a way that no, very few professions provide to their, to their parents, to a, a, a player's parents. So, I did uh, learn to see that that silver lining, but it was hard. I mean, you know, just not being able to sort of, you know, be there the way he was there as a father to me. Right. Do you, do you um, this is kind of random, but do you subscribe to the idea of the, uh, of the baseball clubhouse as a collective? Um, you know, I think of an NBA team and, a, and a, you know, you watch an NBA game and it's a, it's a sort of moving part, the five guys on the court. And, and baseball isn't. Um, and after games, I always found it fascinating. You would you would interview a guy, you'd interview the losing pitcher, you'd gather around the third baseman, and he'd talk about the mood in the clubhouse or what we what we're thinking, you know, or what we have to do. Is that um is that real or is that is that sort of the cliche of of baseball uh, jibber jabber a little bit? No, I think there's there's something real to that. I mean, you could, I feel like every clubhouse had a tone to it. You know, and and it could it could change based on a win or a loss or a streak or not. But there is definitely a culture to to a locker room, and you know what could what people could say made for a winning one or a losing one is up for debate. But I think that there's there's no question that your manager and sort of the tone set by the players, uh, you know, can really become like this almost air in the in the locker room, and. You know, you can feed off of it. There, there's no no doubt about it. You know, I remember Larry Boa came over in, uh, I think it was 2000, after Francona got fired in Philly. And you talk about 180. I mean, Francona and Boa were total opposite styles. But Boa brought, like, attention. And I think, you know, when we were, we were, like, pretty much last place or terrible the year before, you know, it was a good turnaround personality. Like, okay, all or nothing. But then, like, once we turned it around, it was hard to sustain emotionally, you know, at that level. Right. And you could feel, you know, the tension become, go from, like, hey, let's get it going to becoming, like, a kind of vice grip. Um, you know, it, it changed. And and to be able to adapt year to year, personnel to personnel, um, it's it's a very difficult thing, uh, you know, because there's so much change in baseball. Well, it's really, you know, when you mentioned Boa, I was thinking about, um, you know, when the Red Sox hired Bobby Valentine, years ago I had covered Bobby Valentine a lot with the Mets when I was at Sports Illustrated and I thought that's a great I love that hire I love that hire I love what Bobby Valentine brings he brings that sort of pep and that enthusiasm it'll bust you and and it was a a complete and total obviously disaster and 
when I talk to people who follow Boston sports and I ask them, who's your most hated guy in Red Sox history, a lot of them actually name Bobby Valentine. And it's weird how in sports guys go, I mean, he led a very, he led, you know, when the, when the Mets made the World Series in 2000, that starting outfield was Benny Agbayani, Timo Perez, and Jay Payton. I mean, it was a, <laughs> that was a terrible major league starting outfielder, outfield. So I just think it, it's amazing how guys go from genius to idiots in that short oh, of a time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the, the beauty of baseball is you, you generally have tomorrow. There's a lot of tomorrows. And you can, you know, you can redeem, you can do a lot of things. But, you know, when you have like a year or a whole season that just sort of burns into the consciousness in a very, you know, negative or positive way, it's, it, it's hard, to, hard to change. And, you know, you hope that you have the time. Like if Bobby Valentine had a few more years or, you know, came back, you know, it could be different. But that was a, that was a tough fit, you know. I mean, Farrell was being groomed and, ready to take over it and it just was a matter of working out the deal with Toronto and it seemed like, you know, Bobby Bobby V's person you know, and I work with him at ESPN and, and Bobby very super smart and you know, definitely knows a lot about the game and loves the game. So but sometimes, you know, personalities don't line up and if you get off to a bad start, you know, bam, your team is in the toilet and it and it can happen really quickly. Right. Right. Um you know, speaking of sort of the rhythms of baseball and, and the, the oddities and the quirks, one thing I've never asked a guy, I've never asked a baseball player this, and here's, here's a great opportunity. In, uh, in 1998 with the Phillies, you hit 279. In 1999, you hit 325, 325. Then you hit 275, 262, and 249. And how does it work? I, I mean, there are guys like Tony Gwynn and Wade Boggs and Ichiro who every year you know, you know until they sort of age out, what you're going to get. How does it happen that a ball player can go 279, 325, 275? Like, how does that happen? Well, I mean, I guess you'd look back and I'd say, well, that was like a, I had a bell curve career, you know, <laughs> I kind of had. Um, you know, actually, up until that, two years before the 325, I hit 300. Right. And when I, the, the funny thing is, there was probably like a four or five year stretch, even through spring training, that I hit 300. I went to winter ball and spring training, triple A, big leagues, back again. And then even that 279 year, I hit, I was leading the league in hits up until like September. I just went like eight for 80 in September. I was, I was totally exhausted. It was my first full season, 170 pounds soaking wet. And I went like, oh, for September. I was just, the, I had 600, I led the National League in at bats that year. It was crazy. Yeah. So that was that was, you know, that was seemed to be the outlier because then right away I hit 325. Um, now, a lot of things could could happen. Well, starters, certainly the game adjusts super quickly to you, and I think of myself as, you know, fairly capable of making adjustments. But after that 99 season, when I go into spring training, my dad has like multiple strokes, and mentally, pretty much I was gone, you know, and really didn't ever get back to that until I got to Texas in 2003 and I left Philadelphia. Wait, Doug, let me ask you one thing. Let me interrupt you because I'm fascinated by something. When, you're, when this is going on, right. can you literally be at the plate, someone standing on the mound facing you, and your dad pops through your head? Like, does that, does that actually does that happen? Well, it, it, was, it wasn't that direct. It was the underlying sort of angst and anxiety of basically your father 
health constantly laying in the balance. You know, and I remember talking to Hal McRae, our hitting coach that year, uh-huh. and I, you know, I told, obviously, at some point the news got out on how my dad stroke publicly, which is a whole other story I can get to if you want to talk about later. Sure. But the, um, you know, so, but Hal McRae knew what was going on. He said, well, it's a credit to you at this point that you're hitting, you know, 265 because you have so, you know, so much on your plate. I mean, so I was like, well, on one side, it took a lot of ability to play well when you're so distracted. But on the other side, I was way off of that 99 season. And, but I, I, it was hard. I mean, I could remember not really being able to focus that well, the pitcher, you know, everything was coming at me a million miles an hour. The year before I was a step ahead of every pitch, the, this that next year I was just a step behind, and that's all it takes to go from like greatness to mediocrity. I mean, and it's like that because I mean, in '99, literally, I felt like when I when I was like looking to get a hit, I got a hit. Like after if I was 0 for one, most of the time I was one for two. I mean, it was that I was that locked in and that much ahead of everybody that pitched against me, and it was just you know I felt like. That year felt more like what I expected I could do than the 265 in those years, you know. But it just, you know, but, you know, my father's illness was huge. I mean, I was very close to him. We spoke through osmosis practically. And, and yeah, and, and I'm not the only player on earth that's had, you know, illness in his family. And players, some players have been able to find ways to stay more productive on the field. I mean, I had a decent career after that, but, you know, nothing to write home about. But, um, you know, Literally for three years, that's what I, that's what I, the center of my universe, my father's health and just him, you know, surgeries and ERs and, and, you know, had a major stroke the day before my birthday. And I mean, it was, it was a horror show in a lot of ways. And, um, so, you know, and I got my 1000th hit of my career the day he died and it was the last game of the season in 2002. And, and so there's, here's how it works. The other side. Okay struggling but then you know I had six weeks to go in the season that year in 2002 after he's been sick for two and a half years I kind of I, I was I went to visit him after he had a major stroke drove in got in the hospital he smiled for like the first time it was amazing and then he kind of went back into a semi-coma state I drove back got a speeding ticket on the way home and the cop that pulled me over knew me and said look I you know I have a tough year I know you're going through a lot but just keep in mind what you do in the community is more important than your stats. And whatever reason, I heard it from other people, but that somehow changed things. And I hit, I just was on fire the rest of the season. And then 997 hits, I, I, I needed three hits to go, and I ended up uh, coming off the bench, and I got a you know, hit. And then the last game of the season, I, I don't think – well, Bo, my manager wasn't starting me. Who was that? Was that Larry Bowie? Oh, yeah. He wasn't starting me in the series I'm trying to win because we were close to being 500. So he, the PR director, you know, well, the PR assistant was like, look, you know, you should play him. He's a 1,000 hit. He could be in a Philly uniform. So Boa kind of relented the third game, but the second game he, he didn't play me either. So I had 996 hits at that time. Pat Burrell starting, wrenches his shoulder on a play at the plate. And I have to come in off the bench, and I get two hits, including a home run, 998. Last game of the season, you know, I, I, whatever it was, I wanted to get 1,000. 
my dad divinely connected to me. Who knows? But I get Carl Pavano was starting. I get three hits, the first three at bats. Like there, and there, and I got in that box, and I said, "There's no way this guy can get me out today. It's it's just not possible." Like that's how I felt, and and I wish you could feel that way every day. But it was just one of those moments that you can't even explain. And then the game ended at 7:15 p.m. and my dad passed away at 7:15 p.m. And, you know, I buried him with that ball, 1,000th hit. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's the story of baseball that goes under the scenes, you know, which is, you know, what I wrote about in my book about, you know, life is going on and it's, and it's a roller coaster and you try to perform and try to be consistent, but life is not consistent. And so much you don't have control over. And, um, you know, and I don't have regrets from the standpoint of, you know, my father was a great man and, you know, knowing him and losing him is, I'd take that a, a trillion times every single day and twice on Sunday, but not ever knowing him or not having that because, you know, he gave me so much and still it's giving and, and the words he leaves behind. That is a fantastic story. That's a great, I mean, that's great. That's amazing. Um, that's amazing. I can't, I can't even imagine the, uh, the, the pride he must have had in seeing you play all those years. Not only, I mean, graduate, you went to, I haven't even mentioned, I mean, went to Penn, graduating from Penn, playing in the major leagues. I imagine your dad, uh, your dad uh, probably looked at you with a, with a great deal of pride. Uh, well, we had a great relationship and he, you know, he was always very open about, you know, how proud he was of, of the things I was able to do. And I always pointed the finger back to credit my parents and my brother who really taught me the game. And, you know, he was very proud of just the Ivy League degree graduating. And when I made it, right before I got called up, you know, my dad, actually right before I graduated formally in terms of my last, you know, hurrah, my dad had a stroke. I actually had a heart attack then, so I was like 92. And when I made it to the big leagues years later, he said to my mom, wow, you know, I, I almost missed this, you know. So, you know, he was really proud. And, and I, and I kind of like to think, even though he, he's, he never knew this, but I'd like to think he'd be even more proud of what I'm doing now because he loved writing. He loved writing poetry, and I love writing. And, and you know, the dedication I wrote in my book about was for my dad in a poem in the beginning and basically saying that, you know, the, the, be, the best connection and the closest connection I've had with my dad since he's been gone is writing because he loved it. And, I, and I, the moment... I started having some success in writing from a commercial public level was the moment I kind of found him again because, you know, you could, you could get pictures, you can get pendants, you can wear jewelry, and, but it, it, there was nothing that was clicking for me until I actually wrote and got the feedback and, and the support from it. That changed everything. And, and so writing became is so much bigger than me. I can't even, you know, explain it. I, it's, it's like, you know, it's not, it's not, I don't even see it as like a talent, like playing baseball. I just see it as like, it feels very divine to me because it's such a connection to my dad. And it's, and it's one of the few things I have with him physically not here. What did your dad so, do for a living, Doug? Well, my dad was a psychiatrist, and but he was a true Renaissance man. He was born in Trinidad and Tobago and through a political shakeup, he was in the school system, super talented. He was teaching by the time he was 14. He was ambidextrous. So he could write with a chalk with his left hand and switch to his right hand and finish the sentence. And he ended up going to teachers' college. Um, 
and became a what they call headmaster, assistant headmaster, which is like a vice principal in the school system. And when he got transferred, he vowed not to ever get transferred again because it took him out of his home. And he applied for scholarships to the U.S. and got a, a, a ride to Howard University. So he was a 31-year-old freshman, and obviously credits didn't transfer, and he ended up going to med school and uh, settled on psychiatry. But, you know, super gifted, could teach drama, play the piano, you know, without music, sheet music. He he wrote, he wrote poetry, was his real passion, and, um, you know, beautiful poems. And so I kind of got the writing bug from him, and I ended up becoming more of an essay writer, but it was... Um, something that was so present in our house growing up in New Jersey. Well, that's all, you know, that's all well and good, but how did he feel about Hall & Oates? <laughs> oh, he loved Hall & Oates. Yeah, His that's favorite song was Method of Modern Love. Oh, um, no! <laughs> yeah, because he liked the ensemble with sort of, they had a little bit of Caribbean little oh, yeah. timbale thing in the back. Yeah, so um, he did. I mean, look, anybody around me, you, you're going to end up liking Hall & Oates because I just you know, whether I sell it well or whatever, but in my house, I played those vinyls all day long, so. Funny, funny. Uh, um, let me ask you this, Doug. I'm, I'm, this is gonna, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to insult your, uh, your former peers in Major League Baseball, but I'm, I will a little. You're, so here you are, um, you're a guy who went to Penn and you come from a, obviously a very, very intelligent stock and you're obviously very intelligent. And, um, I mean, I covered Major League Baseball for a good number of years. You know, I, I drove around with John Rocker. I had Wes Helms fart in my face. Uh, I had, I probably met some of the, and I'm not saying I'm any genius. I'm a, I'm a Delaware grad, and, you know, that's about it. But I probably met some of the least enlightened uh, people covering Major League Baseball in baseball clubhouses at the time. Now, some very intelligent people, but a lot of guys who sort of never got past adolescence, I never felt like. And I wondered if you ever found yourself um, a guy who loves to write, a guy who loves to read, a pen grad. Um, if you ever looked around and thought, uh, "This is I, I just I don't. This is a weird fit for me." Or no? You know, not really. You know, and and I think it because I don't. Know, I I always like to learn about anything. I mean, if you put it in a box and say, "Okay, well, an academic," and you want to learn about, you know how to model harmonic motion of the planets and things. Yeah, sure, there, there's like a very strict by-the-book academic world you can sort of bury yourself in. But I always thought learning is like all-encompassing. You know, if, if, you know, Billy Wagner was an alpaca farmer and, you know, okay, yeah, I want to learn. It's kind of interesting. Like, it's different. And what I've, I found that everybody had something to add. If, you know, and, and in the clubhouse, when you're playing with these guys every day, and you have these, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversations and, you know, people have a lot of different interests and maybe they're not, you know, literary geniuses, but they're geniuses in some other way. Right. I mean, that's something, and this circles back to my dad because at his, at his funeral, there's a gentleman named Clement London who did a lot of history about Trinidad. He grew up with my dad in Trinidad. And he, uh, he talked a lot about, you know, like, multi, you know, multi-intelligentsia, the ability I'm sure it's a philosophical and teaching philosophy of how a person can be intelligent at different levels. And he was very complimentary of my dad because he felt he had so many different levels of, of intelligence. He could emotionally and rationally and all these different ways. And I think there, everybody has something to add. So I, I didn't feel if, and, and plus I'm in an environment of baseball where I'm around a group of people who love what I do also. And, 
there's a lot to talk about. And as you stay in the game longer, you get to know people deeper in their families. And, and you know, someone grew up in Buffalo, someone grew up in San Pedro de Macariz. I mean, and that was the other thing. I, I learned Spanish coming up, so I gravitated a lot towards the Spanish-speaking players I wanted to learn, and I played in Puerto Rico, and I helped a lot of those guys sort of adjust and yeah, so I had plenty to to spark you know, my intellectual curiosity, and um, I mean, yeah, were there moments? Sure, I remember in in the minor leagues, I was reading a book on the African slave trade. I wanted to just I just picked this book out, and I was in the back of the bus. I was reading it, and one of my teammates came over to me and said, "Why are you reading that? Why are you reading? You don't need to know about that. It's like that that's over. That's history. You just let that go. You know, he was just really annoyed. I'm like, I'm sorry." you're not going to tell me what book I can read. <laughs> you know, sort of like, you know, you're not, you're not my dad. You're not like, who are you? So, you know, I've had, you know, those type of discussions from time to time. And, but in the end of my career, I was very, very happy with how people embraced me and as a opponent, as a player, uh, you know, as a union rep for the team and people at, at, you know, various times in the major leagues would see me as like an advisor. They'd ask me about the financial market, whatever. I mean, it was, you know, it was cool. I, I really, I had a great time. I, I, and, and here's the other thing that I, the minor leagues was a lot harder and me fitting in. So when I got to the big leagues, I was relieved because it's just like right out of Bull Durham, you know, Ebby Calvin Alouche has fungus on his shoes and Crash Davis, Kevin Costner says to him, you know, Hey, you know, if in the big leagues, they'll see you as colorful, but in here, you're a slob. In the minor leagues, you're a slob. But in the big leagues, you know, you could be eccentric and different, and it's, it's embraced. It's unique. It's marketable, whatever. But I found that all of a sudden, people, this intelligence wasn't like a me questioning authority. It became something that people wanted to, hey, talk to my kids about it and as fans, you know. And it was a very different. So I felt much, much, much more fit in at the major league level. Which, you know, which was great for me. Right. Well, I'm. I'm uh, I know Sean Green pretty well, and, and when I uh, I've had talks with him about, you know, he was he was always the Jewish ball player, right? So whatever city he would go into, the uh, the Jewish Weekly News would come and do a profile. <laughs> were you the Were you the Penn guy? Were you the Ivy League guy? Was that your tag with the media? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was the Ivy League guy. Yeah, I was the Ivy League guy, and um, and you know, certainly working in the union and doing all the work with the the collective bargaining and all that is sort of fit into it even more. Uh, so there's no doubt that you have a label, but that's true for everybody. Every player has a label. Sometimes you want to shake them and you get tired of them, but uh, you know, in the end that, you know, there's worse labels to have. So I was okay with it. <laughs> right. right, right. Um, I was fascinated. I was, I was, I was reading up on you before and your book, uh, the game from where I stand uh, came out a couple of years ago and just got great reviews across the board. And I was fascinated by a line um, in the description of the book from your website and also on Amazon where it says, you know, Doug shares what he learned from fellow star players, including Jimmy Rollins, Alex Rodriguez, Randy Johnson, Barry Bonds, and Kurt Schilling. Now, there are two names that jump off the list there. <laughs> it's not Jimmy Rollins and Kurt Schilling. And I, I wonder first, what, what did you learn? Obviously, he's been in the news. Until, what did you learn from Alex Rodriguez? Well, I, I mean, I, I learned a lot. I mean, Alex was my kind of locker roommate, so to speak, his locker was next to mine in spring training in 2003 when I signed with Texas. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and there was a lot of things for starters. Then I remember him, you know, always at the cage, you know, trying to hit off the curveball machine. He was, 
you know, out there early just sort of working on his craft. I saw him as a guy who worked hard and, you know, was very, you know, friendly, actually. You know, he talked, we talked every day. And so, but what was fascinating to me later is how much he had trouble connecting with, with teammates in a way like to, to be the inspiring. He wanted so badly to be this inspiring figure that sort of commanded something. And it just, he tried hard and it just didn't seem to click. And I think that was frustrating at times to him. Um, but, but, you know, I, he, he seemed to like to talk to everybody, you know, he didn't, you know, and, and so, yeah, what did I learn? Here's a superstar player that at the time, certainly the numbers, he was MVP, I think that year, you know, was one of the most, you know, talented players on earth. And he had a lot of trouble just, you know, connecting. And I thought it was interesting that he couldn't just walk in a room and just be like, Hey, I'm Alex Rodriguez, you know, that was, so it was a social side to what came with sometimes the responsibility of being this $250 million man under obviously a lot of pressure. And as we look in retrospect with the PED questions and all that, uh, you know, that was, that was a fascinating experience to be his teammate for, you know, more than half a year that year. Do you think, um, whatever, 10 years from now, can he have a legacy apart from PEDs? Is it possible? What I mean is, obviously, it would always be in the discussion, but can we say, man, that guy was a great ball player, or is that gone, do you think? It, it's going to be hard. <laughs> I, I think he's got to always be attached to it in some ways. I, I think he can change directions of his legacy in time because you just don't know how it plays out. And and that's what I've always been fascinated talking to players when they're kind of finishing their career. If you ask them to define me, what they think their legacy will be, it, you know, they they can't really say. They can because it could be a moment, it could be a great hit, a championship, a ring, it could be a charitable event, it could be uh, an arrest. I mean, you don't know what sticks with people, and you know, it's like Rudy Tomjanovich. You know, he punches the guy and sort of in a reaction in a kind of brawl moment. And, you know, it's like he gets kind of stuck with it. You know, you don't know. And and Alex Rodriguez, as much as we feel he's irredeemable in some level, you know, you don't know. You know, you just don't know what can happen in, in a lifetime. So, um, but, yeah, as a player, look, the numbers are off the charts. He's gonna, you know, I remember doing one of these lists, and, you know, he's probably one of the top five statistical, you know, successfully statistically uh, in uh, ever play the game. But yeah, it's seen through the light of this PED cloud and people just sort of like blow it off now. And it doesn't seem like whatever choices he made was worth it from, from the standpoint of like the, the ability for your stats to hold up. Yeah. What about, um, you mentioned Bonds there too, who actually was never a teammate of yours. So I'm, I'm kind of interested. No. What did you, uh, well, what did you pick Bond, up from Big Barry? Bonds just the domination the domination. I mean, like I said, everybody thinks there's a moment they think he, what he used or not, whatever trigger, but, you know, I played against him obviously a long time and, you know, just, I remember Sean Dunstan and Mark Grace, the Cubs spring training, we were watching Bonds take batting practice in their spring training facility and he hit like everything, you know, pretty much every pitch he hit out. And I remember the awe of watching, you know, all-stars and Mark Grace and great talented players look at him and be like, wow, I mean, just above and beyond. And so his ability, you know, the numbers obviously certainly speak for themselves from the standpoint of like domination, but you know, the the fact that he he was just this five tool 
guy that didn't even always seem like he was at his highest level of focus at times and was just that much better than, than everybody else. You know, and to do that for a lot of years. I mean, obviously, once again, PDs cloud a lot of this, but, you know, I just distinctly remember a lot of major leaguers look with their jaw dropping. Is He was just in a class by himself. Do you think most guys... Like, all right, so you played in what we'll call, I don't, we don't even know if it's erroneous or not, but we'll call it sort of the heart of the, of the PED era. And do you think guys, like, could you go back to, you think, I'm not asking you to do it, I, you probably have never done it. If, if you lined up, whatever, 20 guys, and they said, you have to take a shot, do you think this guy was using or not? Do you think you'd hit on a high percentage or no? By just looking at them? From yeah. your experience throughout your career, like, we just take 20 names from the major leagues at that time who played for a prolonged right. period of time. Do you think you would you would know most or no? Uh, I mean, I probably maybe know more than not. I, I, I you know it's not necessarily from experience, but you know it's sort of like I, I wrote this article called "Seeing Is Disbelieving." At yeah, it was a great article. Before. I have in front of me a great article for the New York Times. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, and you know, so as a player, if you have the fortune to play a long time, you start to get a sense of the parameters of what's possible on a baseball field. You know, you kind of, because you've defended these guys and you've hit these guys. And and when you see things that are way beyond the realm of what you've seen, you either feel like they're alien or something's, you know, awry here. <laughs> um, I think that that starts to play into it. It's It's not evidence in a court of law, so to speak. It's not something that you could probably back, but it's a sense. It's a sixth sense that I think a lot of these gifted players have for the game. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't be able to sustain their career there for a while. So, so I think there's, you know, guys that you you know you wonder, and you've always wondered about based on that, and it could connect to age. You know, like why you having career years at 39 or whatever it is. But I also believe the the drugs have gotten so much more sophisticated that I think over time, this you know, you don't have these guys bulging and their necks popping out of the side of their head and all that. They they're starting to look kind of just strong, and you know, you can't, you're not sure. So the physical evaluation is not as blatant as it used to be, and you try to look at performance, and it's just it's hard to tell. But but when you play long enough side by side with people, that that becomes more of your evidence. Like oh okay. Because you've seen a guy develop. I mean, what are the odds of a guy that you've seen at 18, you know, 19, 20, 20, all the way up, and then at 29 or 30 or 35, he's just like, what? You know, like, you know, this guy all of a sudden consistently dominates. You know, you start to ask questions, and and, and forget about before the steroids was even out there. You just, you know, you just wonder what what changed. Right. You know, and that's that's enough to create, quote-unquote, reasonable doubt. Right. Do you, do you enjoy... Um... You know, do you, do you enjoy sort of sitting in a studio and talking about baseball? Because, you know, I'm, I find TV work fascinating in that, um, you know, it's conversation, but it's not entirely, you know, it's not like you and me hanging out, drinking Cokes and talking baseball. There's a certain formality and format to it. Do you, right. do you, do you enjoy it? Do you find it at all restrictive? Is it liberating? What, it, what is it sort of like for you? Yeah, I, 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 well, I love what I do. I love it. I mean, and I mean, my write, writing is my favorite thing, and I'm, I'm kind of surprised, quite frankly, <laughs> that the TV thing took off as well as it did. I mean, I, I mean, I'm competitive and I want to do well, 
but I didn't think that my you know value added to to baseball tonight was going to be as a TV guy because I had no TV experience really before. Um, I mean, yes, I've worked hard and I just, I'm, I'm very happy with it, but it's um, you know at first when I interviewed at ESPN, I remember at the end of the meeting, Carl Carl Ravitz comes to my last meeting and he says. You know, my last interview of the day. It was like all day, eight hours or whatever. And he says, you know, are you sure you're going to be able to reconcile the fact that you're a long-form writer? You like to expand the points and elaborate. And, you know, how are you going to do this, like, in five seconds or less, describe the history of the union on air? I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing, you know? Yeah. And, and, I, and I thought he was right. I thought it was a concern. But, but after doing it, 30 seconds now feels like an eternity. I mean, it really does. Like, if you are succinct and you make your points, you can get a lot out of it. And what I've, of course, come to love is, like, producing stuff, like making segments and giving myself two minutes to, to showcase something, whether it's a demo on the field or whatever it is. And that's that's been really a lot of fun. And I've been able to write still and be able to, you know, kind of do more of these, like, productions, whether it's, like, the virtuals we do. And, you know, so I, I found a nice niche and. You know, and plus, you know, I have a little bit of the bilingual thing going. I could do interviews in Spanish. And so I, I've become kind of this sort of jack-of-all-trades, um, the go-to guy for the team. And I also live in Connecticut. I'm the, like, the only analyst that lives here. So, <laughs> I, you know, that's a big plus, too. It's like, hey, you need somebody for, you know, the show today? Boom, I'm right here. Right. Uh, it gets me a lot of work, and those reps, you know, make me better. So, look, writing is, is my heart. I mean, I told you the spiritual thing it's 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 a lot to do for my dad too so that's big for me and and i do that all i do that for fun i write all the time just because and but um but i but i've loved i've learned to love how to take those words and find ways to communicate on all these platforms that where people really are you know exposed now because i can do that to things that i care about you know and these longer form human interest things that I can get out there on other platforms. I think ESPN's given me a goldmine of that. Do you think there is a? Um, are there things? Here's a, here's a here's a touchy one. Not touchy for you, really. But here, are there things that you, as a former ball player, can do as an analyst that, whatever, Car Ravitch or some other guy there who hadn't played in majors could not do, or does it all sort of? Is that nonsense? No, that's true. I mean, yeah. but that's also my job and that's the analyst's job. I mean, the hosts, you know, it's, it's like the who, it's who, what, where, when, why, and how, or how and why, however way you want to phrase it. What the analyst theoretically can bring is the how and the why, like nobody else can, mm-hmm. you know, so you can say, okay, this game happened this day and here's this, let me set it up. But you have to tell me how that center fielder got that read on that ball. And, and that's not, not everybody can do that unless you played or, that's that's the difference maker, and your ability to present that and and give that information is is what can make you into a good analyst. I mean, if I if you're watching a highlight and I go, well, it was a great backhand play by Derek Jeter. Well, you're, I'm not saying anything that you know that you know anybody can say that anybody. So that doesn't the viewers like okay, duh, obviously, but can you say can you talk about the footwork for him to get into position? Can you talk about Jimmy Rollins squares a certain way to put himself in a position to cut off so that he can, you know, be in the best relay position? You know, there those nuances. 
Um, but I think people, when you're around other analysts, you do learn. Like I'm, I, you know, I talk to pitchers that I work with or showing, and then I get some pitching ideas, and I'm like, oh, okay. I learn a lot all the time about things that I didn't even think about when I played. Right. I probably know more about the game informationally as an analyst because, you know, I, I actually sit with catchers, and there's not this wall. Because, you know, you're coming up as a hitter. You don't talk to the pitchers. You're not giving away secrets. You're not trying to... You know, you're not trying to. Schilling's not going to tell me when he throws a splitter. You know, I, I'll, yeah, I played behind him, so I learned. But you're, you're careful, even with your own teammates, about what you reveal. So I think there's a whole education that gets lost, even when you play in the major leagues, in learning what the other positions and roles do for the team. You're kind of like, I was a center fielder, I'm an outfielder, this is what I do. I don't need to know, like, all this shortstop stuff, and, you know, I just need to catch the ball, and I have to communicate with him. I don't need to know that the pitcher kind of looks at your feet in the batter's box and recognizes when you're leaning. And I mean, yeah, I kind of get a little of that information, but generally that I didn't that didn't absorb my time. I had a lot to do on my plate. I was very specialized. So as an analyst, guess what? I could talk to Oral Hershiser or whatever freely, whatever, because I'm not going to face you next week. So I get so it's a gold mine. It is a gold mine, and that information. This is a separation what can make you a, a, a really good analyst. Right. That makes, that makes very much sense. Um, Doug, before I let you go here, I always wrap this up with doing five rapid-fire questions, so I'm going to hit you real quick, okay? All right, hit me. This actually, the first one isn't rapid, but it's a good test of you being a baseball historian. Doug, you were drafted uh, 12th in the 1991 draft by the Chicago Cubs. Can you name the 11 people picked before you? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, well, probably most of them. Uh, right. Brian Taylor... Mm-hmm. Mike Kelly, Dimitri Young, Kenny Henderson. Is that right, Kenny? Um, yeah, Ken Henderson. Uh, uh, Joe Vidiello, mm-hmm. Mark Smith, Sean. Wait, no, no. Was I Sean Estes? Mm-hmm. Um, Tyler mi- Green. Yeah, you got two missing. Uh, Shirley, Al Shirley, was he dropping? No. No, he's, he's seventh, uh, eighth. I'm missing eight. Are you missing number three, who was picked before Dimitri Young? Oh, uh, um, David McCarty. Yeah, right. and you're missing number six, a right-handed pitcher drafted by the Astros. Six. Oh, Burke? Or... John Burke. Yeah, very nice. Yep. Very impressive. Okay. Interestingly, Manny Ramirez, Cliff Floyd, Ty Hill, and Sean Green drafted after right. you. After me. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. It's kind of crazy. Uh, number two, what's your favorite word? Ooh, favorite word. Uh, that's a tough one. What do I say a lot, at least? Uh, bootleg? <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll take that. Uh, number three, the world needs to know. What was it like playing with uh, Desi Relaford? <laughs> the world needs to know what it was like. To, oh, hilarious. Uh, Desi Relaford, one of the funniest guys I ever played with. And he could do imitations. He would do a lot of pitching imitations during the pregame. Um I mean, had me cracking up. I mean, one of the funny stories, actually, what happened to him, it was it was Chipper Jones, but we were stretching before the game, and, you know, we were just laying in the grass, and Chipper comes by and, and says, hey, Des. He's like, what, man? He's like, you're always messing with me. What do you want? He's like, you missed the loop. And he looked down. He, he wasn't wearing his belt at all. <laughs> no belt. <laughs> so, you know, Desi would just, you know, and he would just set people up, but, Hilarious, one of the funniest teammates. Oh, very nice. What's uh? Give me the uh, your favorite book of all time. Oh wow, I loved Invisible Man yep. by Ellison. 
very much love that book. Um, that's more of a historic. But I, I mean, I've just I've, I read a tons of baseball books right now, and there's so many good ones right now. Oh, what are a couple? Give us a couple, real quick. Uh, all right, Long Season, Jim Brosnan. Oh, yeah, great book. Absolutely love that book. Um, you know, if I had a hammer, the hammer with Hank Aaron story, I loved. Uh, I'm not sure the type, well paid slave, the the. Um, so uh, Kurt Flood story. Oh yeah, very good. Whew, that was great. Um, I'm, I can I probably can look, look on my shelf here, but there's there's some great books out there. Um, Please tell me you read. Did you read a, a False Spring by Pat Jordan? No. Oh. Uh-huh. You're missing Pat the best Jordan? baseball book of all time, A False Spring. Okay. Well, yeah, I got to look that up. I got to yeah. look that up. Yeah, very good. But I, I got a good collection. I'm very fortunate. Uh, people sending me books, and I, I try to read everything I can. So. Right. All right, and number uh, number five, Doug, obviously the most important question. Give me your uh, your all-time three favorite Hall & Oates songs. Oh, wow. Ooh, that is so hard. I couldn't even do ten. There's, there's just a long list. All right, Sarah Smile is up there. Uh, well, based on like how I enjoyed it when when I heard it, I'm gonna do Sarah Smile. I gotta go Out of Touch. For you know, I know it's like highly produced, and it, but it's just that song I just played forever. Uh, whew. And I, you know, it's. I mean, there's a lot of B-siders, but I'm gonna stick to the hits right now because it's like I think I like um, like She's Gone. It's a great song. Yeah, great song. Great song. Uh, so I, I, yeah, just so many. So you have many. a least favorite Hall of Notes song of all time. Oh, well, I, I'll tell you that Daryl Hall did a solo album called Sacred Songs. Sacred Songs, yeah, of course. And I, I, I don't understand it. I, you know, it's, I just, I, I have a lot of trouble with that one. I've tried, I've, I haven't, you know, so that's the one I can't figure out. I think I just need to try to talk to him or something about what he was trying to do. So that that was way off the grid, uh, but that was a solo project, so, right. you know, but there's very few of songs that there's that. That I mean, I pretty much like or love all of them, but there's a, probably a couple. Right. Well, you and I are the two. I mean, but I know I'm actually surprised there are more Holland Oats fans than you were thinking the world, or maybe you would know. But I, I, I always thought I was kind of the lone wolf for a while, and, and it's good to yeah, know. That yeah. Well, I'm about to write an article about them. I finally, finally, I kept pitching it on 58 different publications. And I finally got a bite. So. Oh, nice. I am about to write um, for their induction. So I'm, I'm really happy. I'm trying to come up with a very unique angle and. So it won't be just talking about oh the pop stars and I, I'm I'm trying to go deep on this one. So right. I really think if you and I if we work hard and team up, we can actually present them at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you. Well, I I probably will be there too. I I think I've come across my passes. So I very nice. Uh, very nice. Serious. Very nice. Um, <laughs> well, listen, Doug. I uh, I appreciate you uh, appearing today on the Quadcast here on thescore.com and. Uh, we will, you know, keep watching on ESPN and, and reading your stuff. And thank you so much. All right. Appreciate you having me on. It's a pleasure. And the Quascast appears every week on thescore.com. I'm Jeff Perlman. Have a good week. For more great interviews, subscribe to the Quascast on iTunes. And you can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. Yeah.